Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the week of April 2nd, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Eugenie Scott brings us up to date on the strange goings-on at the Texas School Board. But first, Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie talks about the new April issue of Scientific American magazine. We spoke in the magazine's library. Well, Merry April Fools, you... You hilarious prankster, you. Well, thank you, Steve. We we do what we can in the editing field. We have uh, the April issue of Scientific American is out. Are all the articles jokes? No, Steve. Once again, it's time for me to go through what I have to assure any number of readers every single year, which is that they will read some articles and they will say, was this some kind of elaborate April Fool's joke? And no, none of them is an April Fool's joke. They are all quite real articles on quite real topics written, in many cases, by quite real scientists. Which brings us to our first case. Yes. The, the cover story, mm-hmm. Does Dark Energy Really Exist? Every time, uh, certainly, we, we publish articles about dark energy, there are a certain number of people who, I think, quite understandably say, you know, they look at the, the w- what we're talking about with dark energy. I mean, it's a force that makes up, you know, whatever it is, 90, 70%, right, 70% right. of the universe. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, an extraordinary, it's, it's, it's invisible. It's undetectable. It, it cannot seemingly be explained by any of the other kinds of forces we know of in the universe. And yet, you know, somehow it, we, it's supposed to be pushing all of the galaxies of the universe apart. It's supposed to be responsible for this incredible, ever accelerating expansion of the universe and and everything moving apart, which we didn't even know existed until about a decade ago. Right, because you need something to make all the observations and all the current theoretical framework work. And so what people have come up with is there's something out there and we're calling it dark energy. That's right. That's right. However, Mm -hmm. our authors in this issue propose a very different explanation. Right. That, that's And that's what people have wondered about is, you know, maybe maybe are, are we getting into some level of, you know, the epicycles, wheels within wheels within wheels. Is there some other explanation that that's maybe makes more sense? And uh, it's probably worth saying, I think the, the authors of this article make this point themselves, certainly dark energy is the best, most widely accepted explanation for the phenomena that the astronomers are observing. But... It's possible that if we change some of the the fundamental assumptions that we make when we interpret, when we look out into the universe, the, the ways in which we're interpreting that, if we change some of our assumptions there, just maybe there's a different explanation that could make sense. And the fundamental assumption that you have to change is the one called the Copernican Principle. Um, Copernicus, of course, is responsible for uh, first making the argument that the sun was the center of the solar system, not the earth. So he ended the geocentric theory. And more broadly speaking, the Copernican principle, as scientists have uh, applied it ever since, is is that when we're trying to understand how the universe works, it is good to assume that there is nothing special about the earth and where it sits, that uh, we're not in a particularly privileged space, and that's why things uh, work the way that they do. The argument that the the authors make here is, what if the the Earth, in this case really the Milky Way galaxy, happens to be in, by chance, uh, a very unusual place in the universe? Uh, the assumption that we make is that the universe 
in its expansion is is fairly homogeneous, that one part is pretty much exactly the same as any other part, same physical rules, same basic kind of expansion of time and space going on everywhere. But what if that's not exactly true? Uh, as they point out, if purely by chance we happen to be in, in uh, a kind of lumpy universe that is not expanding smoothly, um, that some parts of it are expanding faster than others. And uh, as a result, if we happen to be in the middle of, of what is kind of relatively a huge void against a, a much larger universe than what we see, uh, then that could explain what's going on that that in fact it may just be that that uh, we're looking at the fact that there are is less and less gravity within this kind of big cosmic void uh, to be to be slowing things down and and so the the accelerating expansion of uh, of the universe that we can observe is is basically just sort of a of a, a geometric fluke and is it testable though well, that, of course, is, you know, that's the other important thing, because, again, you don't want to just get into replacing one untestable or at least experimentally untestable argument, seemingly, with, with another one. Uh, and, and they make the point that if this is true, then it should be possible using, uh, using the, the right kinds of scans of the sky, and they point to the, uh, the, the Planck uh, satellite that's uh, going up or testing a microwave background, that if we look very closely, we should be able to see very, very tiny differences in the microwave background radiation that uh, will will help to verify the idea that, oh, yes, we, we really are in the middle of some kind of big void because way off that way, it seems like we're actually getting into something that, that may represent a a, a less empty part of the kind of larger macro universe. So the key is when things get confusing as, uh, as in any scientific venture, just get some more data. Right, exactly. Uh, we've got another, the, the square kilometer array, a gigantic radio telescope is supposed to go up in, uh, or it's not going to be uh, in space. It's 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 earth right. based. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be built by 2020. Right, and that ought to uh, maybe provide some information that can get to the bottom of this. Exactly, because I want to know. Yes, well, who wouldn't, Steve? I mean, 2020 will be in our dotage, but uh, you know, we might still be able to uh, <laughs> read some of the articles. <laughs> Throw ourselves up from our wheelchairs and say, "Yay, hey, we're at the center of the universe <laughs> after all." I told you. I told you all I was the center of the universe, and you didn't believe me. Now, in our dotage, we're going to want to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. We'd better. We need bees to do that. Bees, bees, bees. And, of course, everybody's been hearing for a few years now about colony collapse disorder. Right. And we have an article on that, and we, we're starting to get at least some clues as to what is going on. There's no definitive answer yet as to what's wiping out these large numbers of bee colonies, but we're starting to get some clues as to what are some probable factors in the collapse. Right, right. The, it's, it, as you say, it's still a mystery, and it may be that the answer in the end is that there's not just one single cause that's leading to this colony collapse disorder. Uh, as the authors of this article outline, people studying this problem have noticed that, in fact, we, we do seem to have an unusually uh, large number of problems with certain kinds of, of parasitic mites that uh, can attack 
uh, the, uh, the, the bees. And that's uh, been responsible for previous collapses. Yes, exactly. That's, I mean, what, what we're, when they look at it, they can see that there are, uh, there are certain kinds of things that have been, uh, everyone has known for a long time can cause collapse of different individual hives or, or sometimes, uh, regional collapses of, of, uh, honeybee populations. So, for example, these kinds of, uh, infestations of these sorts of parasitic mites, uh, and a, cer- a certain kind of virus called the Israeli acute paralysis virus, uh, that's been known to cause problems. Uh, there are, uh, are different sorts of chemicals in the environment that may also be able to, uh, uh to kill off hives, uh, over time. And, uh, there does not seem to be just any one factor or any, any peculiar combination of, of all of these, uh, these different factors that is now causing the, the collapse disorder. But, uh, but it does begin to look like it may be just all of these problems piled atop one another that, that may actually be doing it. And as a result, it, it may be some kind of unforeseen consequence of the, of the kind of industrialized approach that we take to maintaining bee colonies. Um, you know, city slicker like me, I had no idea about the extent to which our agricultural uh, industry depends on uh, people who are beekeepers and who take their hives around in order to pollinate crops. And that if they didn't do that, we would not have the, the level of, of crop production that we do. You know, we've, we've developed this very industrialized approach to this in which you grow lots and lots of bees in close proximity to one another and you cart them around on trucks. And it may be, um, that in much the same way that we're finding that, uh, some, some aspects of the, this kind of industrialized approach to a lot of, of animal husbandry uh, and other kinds of agriculture that there are there are downsides to that that people haven't always foreseen it may be that we're seeing something like that surface uh, with the honeybees as well so that's an interesting situation that's we're still going to be looking at that this is more of a uh, here's what we know as of now kind of report right it's an ongoing effort uh a potentially controversial article on post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, obviously, is, is something that uh, has, has become very well known to everybody. Um, and there have been lots of concerns about the levels of that that we see among uh, people who are veterans of Gulf War and, of course, Vietnam uh, War before all of that. Uh, and uh, in this April issue, David Dobbs uh, writes about a controversy that is now moving through the uh, psychoanalytic field about the the diagnosis of uh, PTSD and the question of whether it is being significantly overdiagnosed. Now, it's probably very important at this point too to point out. Nobody is disputing the idea that post-traumatic stress disorder is a very, very real, very, very serious problem, particularly for very large numbers of veterans who went through traumatic uh, circumstances. The criticism that's being made, though, is that post-traumatic stress disorder has has always been you know, it's a kind of mercurial problem. It's, it's hard to peg down exactly what, uh, what people, 
will suffer from with this and, and why one person will, uh, will have this problem and another veteran may not. Um, the problem has been that maybe the criteria for diagnosing PTSD are so broad and so vague and so dependent on circumstance that in a lot of cases they are basically indistinguishable from, say, what would be other more commonplace forms of depression or schizophrenia or in some cases even just normal responses to you know life's traumatic injuries the sort of the normal recovery process that people will go through uh, in effect the argument is that if you've been a soldier and you have some of these kinds of symptoms that you are very likely to be labeled as having PTSD and in fact, maybe you are suffering from a completely different problem or something that's not even a, a, a really deep-seated problem at all. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, then sometimes the treatments that might be used to address the PTSD could be the worst possible thing for you. Right. That's why diagnosis is so crucial. Any, any of you people who watch House know <laughs> that diagnosis is crucial because without the proper diagnosis... You're treating the patient incorrectly. <laughs> so as you said, nobody's saying that post-traumatic stress does not exist. But what they are saying, what they are proposing in this article, is that you may have a condition, a very real condition, but it's not PTSD. Right. And and if PTSD becomes a wastebasket diagnosis, then the people who really need help are not going to get it. Exactly. Exactly. And as a result, they're not getting help. And also we may start to have an exaggerated notion of how common post-traumatic stress disorder is among soldiers more generally or among the rest of the population. So uh, it's uh, it's. You know, this is a controversy that is going on uh, within the uh, the psychiatric field itself right now. Um, and David Dobbs does a good job of sort of reviewing some of the arguments on both sides of that. It's something we think a lot of people should be aware of because the outcome of, of a lot of those debates are going to have a very real bearing on how many, many people are treated in the future. And one of the great things about the web is I'm sure we're going to get a lot of commentary from readers many of whom may be experts in the field, and we might get some really fruitful interactions in the comments about this article on the website. That's right. That's right. It's actually it's, it's gratifying to see that uh, we do have a lot of great readers who come in and share a lot of remarkable information in the, in the comment sections uh, online for scientificamerican.com. Those are just uh, some of the feature articles. I, I just want to share with you, I know you're well aware of this, but you might not have looked at the issue in a few weeks. On page 14 is one of our most popular features, the 50, 100, and 150 years ago, uh, innovation and discovery as chronicled in Scientific American. Uh, we, we have little clips from our issue of, this is April 2009, so we go back to April 1959, and here's, here's a clip that, of an article we ran exactly 50 years ago. <laughs> in their relatively brief acquaintance with Pluto, Astronomers have begun to doubt that this object is a planet at all. <laughs> Isn't that great? I yeah. mean, you know, it, the more things change. It's yes. just like people were arguing about this 50 years ago. And then, if you go back 100 years ago, 100 years ago, 1909, we have an article on voice recognition. A safe lock has been invented, which is provided with a phonographic mechanism 
so that it can be opened only by the voice of the owner. <laughs> I mean, I would have loved to have seen this thing with some kind of a, a wax cylinder, and you have to talk into a megaphone. Watson, come in here. I need you. No, seriously, I need you. Get open, open up the safe. The Texas School Board has been revising the state's science standards. On April 1st, I talked to Eugenie Scott, the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, about lunacy in the Lone Star State. Dr. Scott, I saw that there was a vote in Texas. It was a 13 to 12 vote in the Texas Board of Education. Can you give us a little background on what they were voting about and why the outcome is a little disappointing? The votes had to do with the adoption and modification of the Texas Educational Knowledge and Skills, TEKS or TEKS, the Texas State Science Education Standards. And the TEKS have been under revision for a year now by writing committees from various uh, disciplines like chemistry, physics, biology, or whatever. The committees submitted their revisions, and the Board of Education this last two months, the last two meetings in January and March, were revising the TEKS because they didn't like some of the content. And the content they didn't like largely, almost entirely, uh, had to do with the presentation of evolution in the biology and the geology sections. And the vote that you talked about was only one vote of many. The board heavily amended the standards to take out things they didn't like and to modify the standards to be more along their liking. Three things happened to the TEKS. An old science education standard that called for teaching the strengths and weaknesses of theories, uh, which had back in uh, the last time biology textbooks were adopted in the mid-90s, had been used as a club to beat publishers um, uh, over whether or not they included weaknesses of evolution by which they mean a list of creationist uh, claims, was taken out by the writing committees and attempted to be put back on several occasions, actually, by the um, school board members. But finally, they just wore down the moderates on the board. And they ended up with a standard to replace that old bad strengths and weaknesses one that had been used against evolution with a phrase that is still going to be used to beat up the publishers and still going to be used to try to get evolution taught as bad science in the state of Texas. Um, they use the word okay. present all sides. And, of course, the only theory this is ever going to be applied to <laughs> is evolution. So that actually wasn't a victory. So the first thing that sounded good but actually turned out to really give them what they wanted uh Although maybe not quite as easily as the old strengths and weaknesses language, uh, they can still they can still go ahead and uh, press publishers to um, qualify evolution in their books, and whether they will or not, of course, is the important thing. But then there were several other amendments too, and um, many of these amendments offered loopholes that creationists will be using to try to get their views into the classroom and into the textbooks. And a number of other amendments ended up weakening or making more tentative the presentation of evolution. And uh, other other weakening uh, language uh, appears as well. Um, they took out, for example, a statement about the 14-billion-year-old universe. Um, they don't want to be specific. Uh, the board member who argued to take that specificity out said that we, sh- we should be more humble about our scientific conclusions. The chairman of the board, uh, Don McElroy, 
uh, is a self-admitted young earth creationist. So, let, let me just take a second are, to explain that. That means he doesn't believe that evolution took place, and he also believes the Earth is somewhere around six to ten thousand years old. The whole universe. The whole universe. Is six to ten thousand, because the whole universe was created at one time, specially by God, in pretty much its present form. That's right. what special creation is. This is the chairman of the of the state of Texas's board of education. And a man who has a great deal of authority over what gets taught in Texas public schools. Now, why this is really key. I mean, Texas is not, let's say, South Dakota. Because what happens in Texas, I think Jerry Coyne said this, what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. Actually, that was Glenn Branch, but never mind. Okay. Right. <laughs> yes, and that is exactly true. What happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. Um, Texas, because it adopts textbooks from kindergarten through 12th grade, um, has a great deal of influence upon the textbook publishing industry. And as such, uh, traditionally, what Texas has wanted is what people in California or uh, South Dakota or New Hampshire or Massachusetts get. Now, this may be changing uh, because of the... Uh, changes in the publishing industry, more digital publication, more modular publication. What we're hoping is that the publishers will see the wisdom of producing a Texas version that's got all the bad science in it, and then a version of standard science for the rest of the country. Uh, I mean, stick Texas with this. This is, you know, their bad decision. Um, but don't inflict this on the rest of the country. Now, this is expensive. And given the economy, the publishers may not want to go to that expense. But I think one of the things that scientists and other people concerned about science education in the country need to do is make it clear to publishers that as citizens and voters in their wherever they live, whatever state or town that they live, they will make sure that their elected officials know that textbook X, Y, or Z is not to be used in this district because of its bad science. You know, the, on, the only way you can influence the textbook in industry is the economic argument. In, we will not buy your books if you have, uh, if you make, if you make Don Mackleroy happy and produce put this junk in your books for Texas. We will not buy them. Right. Let, let me uh, give you this quote from Mackleroy that you can comment on. He said, "Quote: Somebody's got to stand up to experts." End quote. Yeah. We we were listening to a lot of statements like that in the uh, uh board meeting last week and you know our jaws just dropped to the floor over and over that 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 has got to be one of my one one of the top favorite MacLeroy quotes but I hate to say this Steve it's not the only one. You know this is a guy who who really is uh marching to a different drummer than that of the scientific community. And you know this was very clear. We had uh, prominent scientists, um, members of the National Academy, and uh, in the past we've had Nobel Prize winners testifying about the importance of teaching evolution like we teach it in college, not not to water it down and not to qualify it or teach it as bad science. And my organization, the National Center for Science Education, collected uh, wrote a statement that was signed by the officers of 54 scientific societies. I mean, there's no question that the scientific community is very strongly on the side of teaching evolution as an accepted and valid scientific uh, explanation. 
but uh, as as Dr. McElroy said, when when one of these National Academy members representing the the National Academies group in Texas, McElroy said, "Well, thanks very much for coming. I respect you guys. I just don't agree with you." <laughs> right. That's... I don't I don't agree with the National Academy members and the Nobel uh, laureates in Texas. We have videotapes of uh, Dr. McElroy's. Um, uh, comments uh, on on a number of issues on the NCSC YouTube site. Uh, some of your uh, listeners might like to um, take a look at that. It's it's quite an education. And it's also a good reminder that in many municipalities, in many uh, parts of the country, you don't need any specific qualifications to serve on a school board on on the local level. The the citywide level, the state level, you can just run for the school board. So it might be nice if some science people actually did that, whether you have kids in the area or not. Absolutely. And, in fact, the American Association for the Advancement of Science has uh, been very active in encouraging scientists to take more of a public role in, in this fashion. And running for a school board is a very good way of doing this. It's a very... Very good way of serving your community, but actually also having an opportunity to use your expertise for the public good in a very important way. Because it is one of the strategies of the anti-science crowd is to put people on school boards. Yes, actually about 30 years ago, the uh, religious right figured out that if they really want to shape the society, they have to get to the kids. Because schools, public schools are where so much of the enculturation of American society takes place. So if they want to influence that, they need to be running the schools. And they, 30 years ago, they started running people for school board. And people need to pay attention to who is running for and sitting on their, their state and local school boards if they really want to uh, guard against some rather unscientific ideas being spread to the next generation. Indeed, some fabulous and unintentionally hilarious clips of Don McElroy explaining evolution are up on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and then search for the National Center for Science Education's postings. Use the search term NATSEN for Science Ed for the numeral for. All one word, so that's NATSEN numeral for Science Ed. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, belly button lint may actually help keep your navel free of contaminants. Story two, sunspot activity has hit an 11-year high. Story three, a gorilla at the Bronx Zoo got an MRI. And story four, a venomous mammal, a small shrew-like creature called the selenodon, is indeed a mammal that produces a toxic venom. Time's up. Story four is true. The Selenodon is indeed a venomous mammal, and it's now endangered in its home in the Dominican Republic. A new project is aimed at saving it. Check out images online of the Selenodon. It looks like the well-known rodents of unusual size from the Florin fire swamps, only much smaller. Story three is true. A mobile MRI unit came to the Bronx Zoo to give Fubo the gorilla an MRI after he suffered a seizure. For more, check out the March 31st edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And story one is true. Belly button lint, a.k.a. navel fluff, 
appears to trap some nasty stuff that would otherwise lodge in there and be in contact with your skin. That's one result from a study performed by a chemist named George Steinhauser and published in the journal Medical Hypotheses. Steinhauser's curiosity about belly button lint led him to discover that it is indeed composed mostly of bits of whatever shirt you happen to be wearing that day. He went so far as to study the collection process before and after shaving his abdominal hair. For more, just Google Steinhauser and Lint. And don't think that the belly button Lint collection is an adaptation by evolutionary natural selection. I'm sure that natural selection came up with the belly button for more important purposes. All of which means that story two about sunspot activity being at an 11-year high is totally bogus. Because what is true is that solar activity is currently very low, the lowest since 1913, in fact. Sunspot frequency was very low in 2008 and so far in 2009, and there's been a 20% decrease in the solar wind, the stream of charged particles coming from the sun, since the mid-1990s. The website solarcycle24.com notes that, quote, The sunspot cycle is behaving a little like the stock market. Just when you think it has hit bottom, it goes even lower. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, our in-depth report on the bee colony collapse situation, and another in-depth report on the science of baseball, prepared by our steroid-free editorial staff. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.